So starting 1 Samuel, and really we're going we're gonna to ultimately get through 1 and 2 Samuel together. We're going to study the books of Samuel. And, you know, most of us in this room are at least vaguely familiar with the books of Samuel because in the books of Samuel, you have some of the just really big kind of famous stories of the Old Testament, stories that most of us at least have heard of. For example, we have David and Goliath. Who has not heard of David and Goliath, right? We also have David's epic fall. David and Bathsheba is covered in the books of Samuel. You also have Jonathan and his armor bearer. When just the two of them went up against an entire Philistine garrison and overthrew them. You also have that famous story where Uzzah actually reaches out and he touches the ark of God and God strikes him dead. And even David can't get his mind around that. And then, of course, you've got God's midnight call of the young Samuel as he was sleeping on the floor in the temple. And really, there's so many more amazing stories in the books of Samuel. But most of us have heard at least some of these stories at some point before. But the purpose of First and Second Samuel is not to retell some of Israel's most epic stories. The purpose of First and Second Samuel, which were originally one scroll and not two, is to tell the history of the establishment of the monarchy in Israel with David as God's chosen king. That's why these books are in our Bible. Again, they tell the story of God establishing the monarchy, putting a king over Israel, and God's king was David, and the books of Samuel are going to make that clear. Now, this idea that the purpose of these books is about the monarchy, about the establishment of the kingship in Israel, becomes even more clear when you learn that in the Jewish ordering of what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish ordering of the Old Testament was such that the book of Samuel, or the books of Samuel, follow immediately after Judges. Now, if you look at your table of contents, you'll notice that it goes Judges, then it goes, anybody know? It's too early for Bible trivia, huh? It's Judges, Marianne got it right, she nailed it. It's Judges, then it's Ruth, then it's the books of Samuel. And the reason for that is because Ruth takes place during the time of the Judges. And so for historical purposes, Ruth has been moved there, but the Jews, when they ordered the Old Testament, it was Judges and then it was Samuel. The reason why I bring that to your attention is because at the end of the book of Judges, you have this repeated refrain that says this, and you even see it in the very last book of the book of Judges. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And so it seems as if Uh, the end of of, the book of Judges is trying to set us up for a resolution to that problem. That in the days of the Judges, which if you know anything about that time in biblical history, things were not good. In those days, there was no king there. And now the book of Samuel begins and the expectation of an Old Testament reader would be, okay, is God going to do something? Is God going to fix that and rectify this and bring about a king in Israel? In this way, the books of Samuel are transitionary. They're transitioning, uh, or they're telling us the story of the transition of one form of leadership in Israel, leadership through judges, to another form of leadership in Israel, leadership through a king. 
Now, let's just pause, though, and let's just sort of map this onto the history of God's people so that we can sort of situate ourselves in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abraham and promises him that he is going to grow his family and that, that his family is going to be a blessing to the nations. And so there we see the formation of the people of God in Genesis 12. Well, Abraham's family begins to grow, and eventually they end up in Egypt because of a great famine. While they're in Egypt, what they probably initially thought would be a shorter stay ends up becoming 400 years, and during those 400 years, God's people actually find themselves in slavery under the pharaohs of Egypt. And after about 400 years, God's people are crying out for deliverance and crying out to the Lord, and God hears them, and he remembers them, and so he raises up a deliverer named... A deliverer named... Moses, right? And Moses is born... And then Moses is used by God to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt on toward the promised land. Only problem is they took a 40-year detour, wandering in the wilderness. But at the end of Moses' life, God raises up his successor, a man named Joshua. And Joshua actually leads the 12 tribes of Israel into the promised land, into the land of Canaan, and they start driving out their enemies. Well, after Joshua's death, Israel enters into a 200-year period where they're ruled by judges. These judges are these strong military deliverers who are able to sort of unite the tribes against their common enemies and drive their enemies out. And these, these judges exercise some political and judicial leadership over the people of God. But as I mentioned a moment ago, this period, this 200-year period under the judges does not go well. In fact, let's look again at the last verse in the book of Judges. Now I'm highlighting another part of the verse. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So during the period of the judges, it was for all practical purposes, a time where God's people were rejecting God as their king. They were saying, forget what Yahweh, the Lord, has to say to us. We're just going to do whatever is right in our own eyes. And this background sets up the book of Samuel with no king in Israel and the people failing to be faithful to their Lord. God is going to now establish a king in Israel who is going to be an example to them of what God's kingship actually looks like. And the opening paragraph here in 1 Samuel, that thankfully I don't have to read with all those tricky names. Betsy got stuck with that today. But the opening paragraph prepares us for a God-sized plan to be unveiled. Now in verse 1, we're introduced to a man, this man named Elkanah. And for a brief moment, we would assume as readers that Elkanah is this coming king who's going to resolve the problem in the book of Judges. But immediately in verse 2, we see that the, the attention actually pivots away from Elkanah and it rests not on his wives, but actually the attention goes to their children. And in Hannah's case, her lack of children. So that after we read verse 2 here, 
which says he had two wives, and I've never read that and had the following story turn out good. He had two wives, and the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children. Look at what the author's doing. She had children, but Hannah had no children. And so, so what the author has done here after the introductory paragraph is he has set us as readers up with this suspicion that maybe God's big plan of what he's going to do to rectify the problem in Israel is actually going to involve the birth of a baby. Now, despite the general apostasy or falling away that was taking place in Israel during this period, we come to learn in verse 3 that this family is led by a man who is earnest in his faith. Look at verse 3. Now, this man, referring to Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli... Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. So notice that year by year, this man, Elkanah, takes his family on a family excursion. It's just that they don't go to Disney World or Hawaii. Instead, they go to a town called Shiloh, where they can worship and they can sacrifice to the Lord. So Elkanah makes it a priority every single year to attend the festivals and the feasts of the Lord and to go to Shiloh to be a worshiper and to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Now, Shiloh is an important town during this period of Israel's history. Back in Joshua, remember Joshua was the one who led them into the promised land. Back in Joshua chapter 18 verse 1, you'll read a note there that Joshua set up the tabernacle in a town called Shiloh. Now, the tabernacle, of course, was the precursor to the temple. The tabernacle was sort of a mobile temple, if you would put it that way. It was a tent of meeting that the Israelites would construct whenever the, the, the Israelites would stop moving, and they would set it up, and the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of God, was in there. And this is where the Israelites would meet with God. This is where God's presence would be found. From Joshua 18, verse 1 onward to this period, that tabernacle, that mobile sanctuary or temple, was sitting in a town called Shiloh. And so throughout the period of the judges, those couple of hundred years, Shiloh became sort of the center of Jewish religious life. And this was the place where, again, God's presence was uniquely found in the tabernacle. Now, I'll admit to you that it's quite odd for me to refer to a man who has two wives the way that I referred to him a moment ago. Namely, I said he was earnest in his faith. But we should note that despite God's pattern for marriage being established in Genesis as one man and one woman for a lifetime, the Old Testament never directly condemns polygamy. The practice was widespread in the ancient world, and its practice was not unknown in Israel, as we see here. Thankfully, though, it was never the norm, and that was probably due at least in part to the fact that whenever it was practiced, it turned out poorly, like we see in the text before us today. So, while Elkanah might not have been operating according to the ideal, he was not living in direct disobedience to the commandments that are laid down in the law of Moses. 
And to his credit, this man is seeking to lead his family in the worship of the Lord during a time period when most of his peers had all but turned their back on God. Well, with these introductory pieces in place, the author is now ready to begin to develop the conflict of the story. Look at verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So while this family would go to Shiloh, the big event for the family there was the sacrifices that they would offer to the Lord. And we know from the Old Testament that when worshipers would come and they would offer certain voluntary sacrifices like the peace offering, after they would sacrifice that animal, the priests would actually give the family a portion of the meat back and the family would then take that meat and they would have a feast together and they would celebrate uh, they would celebrate what the Lord had done for them. This is the sort of meal that Elkanah and his family are having together in 1 Samuel 1. And Elkanah would take that meat that he was given back from the priest, and he would divvy it up among the members of his family. Of course, meat at this time was not something that people ate once a day, twice a day, three times a day. So meat was more of a luxury. And so he would divvy up this meat among his wives and his children. And in verse 5, the big takeaway is that Hannah was loved by her husband Elkanah. The fact that that is not said about Peninnah is very significant. Hannah is put forward in this text as the wife that this man loved deeply. And so, this meal that was celebrated every single year was a source of pain for this family. In verse 6, we read that Peninnah and Hannah are actually rivals. They're rivals. And when you stop and think about it, how could it ever be any other way in a marriage that's not monogamous? Hannah is this wife who is loved by her husband. Penna is a wife who has children with her husband. And so these two women are set as rivals against each other, again, showing us God's wisdom in designing marriage to be between one man and one woman for one lifetime. These two women are rivals, vying for the heart and attention of their husband. What a mess. Now, as if the laughter and the joy of Peninnah's children around the dinner table was not injurious enough to Hannah, as she would sit there seeing all of this food being distributed to Peninnah and her kids, she would just get her portions. And then she'd watch these children laughing and interacting with their mom and their dad as if that wasn't painful enough for this woman, Hannah. We learn in verse 6 that Peninnah took the opportunity every year at this great feast that they were having to actually provoke and irritate her rival. 
And she was doing it, we read, on the basis of Hannah's barrenness. It says, because the Lord had closed her womb. So already a a, a place in her life where there was so much pain, so much hurt, her infertility, where, where she was so deeply pained and wounded, became the very place that Peninnah would push on to provoke her, to irritate her, to break her heart and to break her spirit. I mean, the looks and the comments around the dinner table must have been unbearable. You can imagine that every time Elkanah is interacting with one of his and Peninnah's children, Peninnah would just sort of smirk at Hannah. You could imagine that Peninnah might look at Hannah and say, hey, can you change this diaper for me? I have my hands full with all the other littles. You could imagine as the family is there giving thanks to the Lord for what he's doing among them, maybe Peninnah would look at Hannah and say, Hannah, what do you have to be thankful for this year? I mean, you could imagine how much this would wound this woman and how much it would break her heart. And the narrator here is setting up this conflict for us so that we can understand how deep the rivalry was and how painful this experience was. And notice what it says in verse 7. So it went on year by year. This wasn't a one-off experience. This was a daily reality that spanned many years. For Hannah, this character in the story. No wonder we read in verse 7, Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. What should have been an annual time of joy and celebration was a constant source of pain and misery for this family. And Hannah could trace back most, if not all of that misery, to her infertility. The pain from infertility that the women and the couples who wrestle with it is so very deep. And Hannah, to a large extent, is wrestling with much of that on her own, bearing the brunt of it. We should also bear in mind that in the ancient world, infertility often carried additional layers of pain. For one, barrenness in the ancient world could have disastrous relational implications. And that's certainly what we see in this story. Because of the importance of producing heirs for inheritance purposes, etc., a woman who could not have children often found herself in Hannah's position with a husband who has turned to another woman to produce children. If you look back in verse 2, it's significant that Hannah is listed first. That almost certainly means that Hannah was Elkanah's first wife. And again, this is the wife that he loves. This is the wife that, probably the wife of his youth. And likely what that means as we read this text is that Elkanah and Hannah were married. And then after a number of years, as she could not produce uh, children, that introduced a whole new relational dynamic into that family. As he took on another wife, Peninnah, to produce children. Beyond the relational implications, barrenness in the ancient world, especially in Israel, also carried massive spiritual implications. It was clear in the scriptures that barrenness could at times, let me emphasize that, could at times, meaning not always, could at times be a sign of divine punishment or curse. We see a great example of this in Genesis chapter 20 with Father Abraham as him and Sarah um, are 
uh, traveling and they come into the presence of a man named Abimelech. And here's what we read in Genesis 20, verses 17 and 18. It says, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So in that case, God had brought infertility into Abimelech's house as a judgment over what had happened when he tried to take Sarah, was, was considering taking her as a wife. Conversely, we know in the Old Testament that a fruitful womb was generally understood as a sign of God's blessing and favor. In the book of Deuteronomy, as God's establishing the covenant with his people, God gives them promises that, hey, if you're obeying me and you're faithful to me, I'm going to bless you and listen to some of the promises. This is Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 14. God says, and because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples, and then check this out, there shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. So in addition to the immense pain of not being able to have her own children, Hannah is also dealing with a messy marriage and a family situation that she probably never imagined for herself, and the stigma and the suspicions of the broader community about her godliness or lack thereof. This is a woman who must feel so deeply hurt, so deeply discouraged, and is running the risk of wondering, does God care about me? Is God there for me? She must have been thinking, where is God in the midst of all of this? I mean, we would assume, most people would assume God cares about the national crisis that is raging in Israel during this time. But here's this woman from a tiny little village in an unknown family, and she must be asking herself, since this has gone on year after year after year, does God care about me? Does God care about my pain? And family, to Hannah's eternal credit, this faithful Hebrew woman, despite all she's gone through, is holding out hope and believing and trusting that God will not forget her. But now we get to verse 9, or verse 8 rather. And all we can say is Elkanah, Elkanah, Elkanah. Because he does try to make things better. And how many husbands can relate to this? but he totally sticks his foot in his mouth, right? He says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why are you crying right now? Right again, they're around the dinner table. Why are you crying right now? Why are you not eating? Why is your heart sad? And here's what he says. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Read the room, buddy. Right? He looks at her and he says, don't cry, babe. You've already won the lottery. You have me. 
And, and we know it doesn't work. It doesn't go over well because as soon as she has a chance, she gets up and bolts and gets out of the room. Look at verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she heads into the temple, notice in verse 10, it says she was deeply distressed and she prayed. And friends, let me just say this. Those two things should always go together. When we feel deeply distressed, there are lots of things we can try to do in those moments. But far be it from us as the people of God who know the goodness of God to not say the first thing I'm going to do when I am deeply distressed is I'm going to go to God and I'm going to pray and I'm going to make my requests known. I'm going to do what the New Testament teaches me to do. I'm going to cast all of my anxieties and all of my cares on him. Why? Because he cares for me. What a great act of faith this woman Hannah demonstrates here. She's low She's in pain. She's miserable. She's suffering. Somebody has just tortured her at a dinner party. And she gets up and she says, I'm going to the house of the Lord because I need God's presence. And she prays. And I love this because this is not calm, composed, Sunday morning kind of prayer that we do here in front of each other at church. This is the kind of prayer you never want anybody else to see. This is like bawling your eyes out sobbing, crying uncontrollably, praying to where you can't even get the words out. She's not vocalizing anything. She's sort of just muttering a little bit. She can't even bring words out because she's so undone and so overwhelmed with emotion. But she's before the Lord and she's praying. And from this place of deep distress, she vows a vow to the Lord. And she says, if you will look on the affliction of your servant, this is verse 11, and if you will remember me, and if you will not forget me, but you will give me a son, I will give him to you all the days of his life. Now, family, this is so awesome. This is such an amazing demonstration of faith. Because remember, a few verses back, we read this phrase. It said, because the Lord had closed her womb. It's actually even repeated. Because the Lord had closed her womb. Family, the ancients did not understand the science behind infertility, but they did understand the theology behind it. Hannah was able to see, as was her husband Elkanah, that at the end of the day, if God is who God says he is, and he's really our creator, and he's really sovereign, and he's really on his throne, then in his mysterious providence, God has prevented Hannah from conceiving. And this is oftentimes the most difficult part for us as believers. Not just with infertility, certainly there, but with all of the suffering that comes into our lives. We have to reconcile the fact that it could have gone a different way. But God, for reasons that are often mysterious to us, God is saying, 
I'm going to allow this and I have a plan and I have a purpose in the midst of this. And the person of faith takes God at his word. Here's what's so great about Hannah. Yes, Hannah knew of God's sovereignty. But guys, Hannah also knew of God's goodness. And so Hannah knew that just as God had closed her womb and prevented her from having a baby, God at any moment could snap his finger and he could open her womb and give her a baby. And in faith, this woman says, I don't care how many years have gone by. I don't care how old I might be at this point in my life. None of that matters to me. I am going to God and I am getting on my knees and I am going to pray bold, maybe even audacious prayers of faith and I'm going to lean into the good part of God and we'll see what happens. And she does. And she prays earnestly and boldly. She goes so far as to even make a vow to the Lord. Now, what is a vow? That's something we see in this text. It's something that we see at different points in the Old Testament. But essentially, a vow is, a vow is this. It's a conditional promise. It's sort of an, you'll notice the structure of a vow. There's an if-then component to it. In a vow, a person is saying to the Lord, Lord, if you do this, that's the if side, then I will do this. So God, if you do this, this is what I will do in response. Now, most of us don't pray this way. We don't see very many examples of this in the New Testament, but let me give you a couple of points about vows here. Nowhere are we told in the Bible that we have to make vows to the Lord. There's no commandment, Old Testament or New, that says that this is part of the way we pray or that we have to do this before the Lord. Vows are voluntary. So if we choose to make one, we better keep it. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23. The Lord says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. So look, there's a clause there. If you just don't vow, then there's no worry that you're going to sin. You don't have to do this. And he goes on though in 23. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So again, these are entirely voluntary. Nobody's twisting your arm and saying, pray this way. But here's, here's the most important thing about vows. God is not obligated to respond to a believer's vow. We can't force God's hand by saying, God, if you do this, and now we're forcing him, then I'm going to do this. That's not the way it works. God is not obligated to respond to a vow. But if the Lord does respond to a vow that you have made, you are obligated to fulfill your end of that vow. Otherwise, as the scripture says, we will be guilty of sin. Now, I've told this story before, but it's the first vow that I can ever remember making to the Lord. I was in fourth grade, which actually my oldest son Judah is in fourth grade. Listen up, buddy. I was in fourth grade, and I was known as a really, really good moral kid in my elementary school because I was raised by Christian parents, and I tried to be a moral kid. But I was in the library one day, and there was this girl that had a crush on me. I know that's really shocking, with how I look, but there was a girl who had a crush on me, and her and her friends would follow me around the playground and everything, and she would always 
just be like right there when I turned around. So I'm like in the library or maybe it was a book fair. I can't remember. And like I turn around, she's literally right there with her friend standing there, like looking at me. And I said to her, I said, I wish you were a big bug so I could squish you. I know, right? And now I'm a pastor, like the irony of that. And I said that to her. And right as the words came out of my mouth, I was like, oh man, what did I do? Because I just saw her face was like so dejected. And I was like, oh man, I walked away. I felt so bad. And I was sitting in my seat in class after that. And I was like sweating bullets. Like, is something going to come of this? And all of a sudden I saw her talking to the teacher. I was like, oh no. And so the teacher calls me outside and we're standing outside of the portable on the stairway. And she says, Daniel, this is what I heard you said. I'm sure it's not true, but I had heard this. Is this true? Well, she had already given me the out, right? Of course that's not true. And I totally lied to her. Lied to my teacher. I know, right? I know. I still feel terrible about this. So I told my teacher, no, I didn't say that to her in the library. The story gets worse because my teacher believed me. She believed me, right? Oh, so I went and I sat back in my seat and I was like, there's no way this is going to hold up in a court of law. Like they're going to figure this out. More evidence is going to come in. So I'm sitting in my seat and I made the first ever vow. I can remember I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, my little fourth grade self, I said, Lord, if you bail me out of this right now, here I go. If you, then I will never get in trouble again. And I'm happy to report to you that I have upheld my end of the bargain ever since. I've never, ever gotten trouble since then. No, I'm happy to report to you that Jesus forgives our sins and he's forgiven me. But a vow is structured like that. It's an if-then sort of transaction and we need to be careful. And I will say to the children here, thinking of my own kids sitting in the back, that one of the main reasons why I think I responded that way to that girl was because of peer pressure. It was because my friends were already feeding me, th- me this idea, oh, she's annoying, you, we need to get her to stay away from us, etc. And I wanted to look cool in front of my friends. We have to be mindful of the power of peer pressure. That's all bonus footage for today. But we already learned here that Eli was sitting in a chair by the entrance to the temple. Obviously, though, Hannah did not see him, but he's seeing her, he's watching her. Look at verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, Hannah here, we read, and this is important, it says she's praying to the Lord, but she's speaking in her heart. And even clarifies even further, he says there's, there's really no words coming out of her mouth which is a great reminder that prayer does not have to be audible. People don't have to be able to hear it. You can pray in your own heart. You can pray in your own mind. You can pray at any time. And this was genuine prayer before the Lord. But Eli, this priest Eli, who we're going to learn through these first few chapters, is not a very spiritually alert man. He mistakes her for a drunken woman. But Hannah With all due respect to the priest, clears things up. Look at her in verse 15. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, 
For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. I love how respectful she is. First, she, in her prayer to the Lord, has this posture of humility and submission, calling herself God's servant. And now, even as she's speaking to the priest who misjudges what she's doing and her motives, she calls him my Lord. And she calls him her servant. She's respectful in her response, but she clears things up with him. And in verse 17, Eli sees that he made a mistake and he changes his tune. And he goes from security guard back to priest mode in the temple. Here's verse 17. Then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. So Eli now shifts gears and he actually pronounces a blessing on this woman. He says, go in peace. And he says, may God do for you what you've asked him to do today. And for Hannah, this assurance that she receives from this elderly priest is as good as an assurance from the Lord himself. We know that because her circumstances don't change, but boy, does her countenance change, right? She went into the temple, dejected, sobbing, brokenhearted, had lost her appetite, and all of a sudden, notice in verse 18, she gets up and she goes her way and she eats food and her face is no longer sad. It's clear that Hannah's faith has been reignited and she leaves the temple believing that her God has not forgotten her, that her God sees her and has heard. In the morning, the family gets up, they worship the Lord, and then they make the roughly 15-mile journey back home. And shortly thereafter, we read that Hannah conceives and she has a son. She calls the name of the son Samuel, which means name of God. She wants to give God glory because she knows that he is the one who answered her prayer and gave her this son that was a miracle. Now, this chapter began by giving us an intimate look into one insignificant Jewish family and a wife who was in great distress. She was barren and she was miserable. And the chapter now is drawing to a close with the Lord hearing and answering her audacious prayer that God would open up her barren womb and grant to her a son, and the Lord does it. And with that, the stage is now set for God to begin a new work among his people. Hannah and her husband Elkanah show us that even in times of widespread spiritual darkness, God is still there. And what's more, during times of widespread spiritual darkness, God is not looking for the mighty and the powerful to solve his problems. God is looking for those, even if they're insignificant in the world's eyes, who have faith and trust in him. Now, one would expect at this point, with the birth of this miraculous child, that we have the makings of the king who is going to come to Israel. But that's not quite right. Samuel is a miraculous child. He's born of a barren woman, and Samuel will grow up to be a mighty man of God. But listen, Samuel, this miraculous baby, is sent by the Lord to prepare the nation for the coming of God's chosen king. And this reminds us of another mighty man of God who would come on the scene in Israel about a thousand years later, who was also born of a barren mother, 
Her name was Elizabeth. And he was sent to prepare the nation for the coming king. This mighty man of God said of himself in John 1.23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. His name was John the Baptist. Jesus said of John the Baptist that among those born of women, none is greater than John. And he was sent to Israel during another season of darkness and hopelessness for the people of God. And by this time, when John is sent by God to prepare Israel for the reception of a king, some of God's people were beginning to realize that they needed a king who was more than just a military and political leader. They needed a king who could deliver them from sin and death. That's what they needed, and that's what God gave them. When John laid eyes on the king that he had come to announce, Jesus of Nazareth, he announced this in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the king that they ultimately needed. And this is the king that the world still needs today. Not a king who can solve our political or military crises or fix inflation in our economy. No, no, no. We need a king who can actually deal with our greatest enemy, sin and death. A king who can deliver us from the power and the penalty of our sin like we talked about last Sunday. And God has provided that king by sending his own son here 2,000 years ago to live the righteous life that you and I, obviously, from today's sermon, cannot live ourselves, and to voluntarily lay his life down on the cross where he would absorb the wrath of God for all of your sins and my sins so that when you stand before God, there is no wrath left for you. And then three days later, Jesus would triumph over the grave, once and for all, defeating our greatest enemy, death itself, so that we can enjoy life forever in God's presence. This is the king that God has sent to us, and this is the king that we still need. And family, this is the king for all of us who have put our faith in Jesus that we are worshiping here today. Let's pray together.